Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. And it would help uh, both you and me greatly if you'd uh, find the Bible you were reading from uh, just before. And open it up in two places, those two places we read from just a moment ago. Perhaps if you could put a a notice sheet or something in Genesis chapter 4. That's on page 6. And then when you've done that, if you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, that's on page 1209. 1209. And if you'd like as well, there's some space to make notes, some headings there um, on the back of the blue service sheet. Richard was 97 when he died. And after his funeral, uh, his remaining family gathered around uh, the obligatory bite-sized sausage rolls and they shared memories of him. They consoled themselves with the usual platitudes that we tend to say when we don't really know what to say. He had a good innings. He wouldn't want all this fuss. If only he could see us now. Above all, though, they consoled themselves that Richard had lived a respectable life. Uh, Indeed, he liked to think of himself as a good man, a decent man, even a religious man. He never did anyone any harm. He even went regularly to church. Words could not describe the experience for Richard as he found himself standing before the judgment seat of God. For a moment there was only a great hanging silence, which was both wonderful but also terrifying. And there was a feeling of being totally exposed, as if every word and deed and thought were laid bare. But since Richard believed himself to be a good a decent, even a religious man, he, like his relatives, tried to console himself inwardly with the fact that he had lived a good, decent, respectable, even religious life. And so the words which came next from the very lips of God were a crushing and dreadful surprise. Away from me, I never knew you. Now, I've obviously imagined some of the details of Richard's story, but it does raise a question. What will make you acceptable to God? Perhaps you've you've come to church for the first time tonight. You're new to all of this. You're not even really sure if God exists. But assume for a moment that he does. Isn't that a question that you would want to know the answer to? What will make you acceptable to God? I mean, is it church attendance or charitable giving? Do you have to refrain from something? What what about providing for your family? Is that enough? Do you have to achieve some level of recognition in your place of work? What about some position of esteem or respect in the local community? Is believing that God exists enough? What makes you acceptable to God? And more than that, how can you know? 
Well, the Christians who received this letter to the Hebrews were struggling with a similar question. They were beginning to doubt God's word, that faith in Jesus alone, who they couldn't see, was enough. And they were in great danger of drifting away, of shrinking back, to place their trust in things which, though they seemed tangible, could not, in and of themselves, make them acceptable to God. And so if you look just further up the page, back into chapter 10, verse 38, you'll see what they were reminded of. Verse 38, but my righteous one, in other words, the person in right standing with God, the person accepted by God, my righteous one will live, how? By faith. And before this becomes the world's shortest sermon, though you might like that, the question on your lips, I'm sure, is, what does that mean? What on earth does it mean to live by faith? What might it look like? Well, the writer of this letter anticipates your question again. And he wants to teach us by giving us some examples, real-life stories to illustrate what a life of faith looks like. And throughout this summer, both morning and evening, we're going to be investigating each of these examples. We had the first one with Paul this morning. And so now we come to the second. So read again with me. From Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, and we'll meet again tonight's characters and explore tonight's story. By faith, Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks even though he is dead. Something about this story of Abel and Cain cries out to us. It cries out through the generations to teach us something about the nature of true faith in God and in his promises. So now let's turn back to where you've got your notice sheet or or whatever. Genesis chapter 4. And let's investigate this story more closely. And when you've turned there, let's pray together that we, we would hear God's voice clearly tonight. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would open your word to our minds and to our hearts. And please would you open our minds and our hearts to your word and grow in us a deep and real faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So to help us understand what acceptable faith looks like, the first thing we're going to see here, the first heading on your blue sheet, is that God looks upon the heart. God looks upon the heart. I want you to be reminded that God looks upon the heart. The writer to the Hebrews was quite clear, wasn't he, that for Abel, faith made the difference. Faith made him and his offering acceptable to God. And crucially, faith made the difference between Abel and his brother Cain. And yet, as we heard the story read in Genesis 4 just before, it seems to me what's most striking, at least on first glance, is not how different the brothers seem, but how similar. Read with me again from verse 2. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. 
In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. So here are two brothers, two apparently similar young men. They're both hardworking men. They've got rural jobs of various kinds. They're both respectable men, providing for their families. They're both, it seems, religious men, bringing sacrifices to the Lord. And yet, and yet, verse 4, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. And you say, why? Is God fair? Morag and I are about to become parents for the second time. And when we do, we want to try, at least, and be fair with both children. What's going on here? Has God missed out on Parenting 101? The only conclusion we may draw at this stage of the narrative, since at first glance, the point seems to be that Cain and Abel just look really similar, is that faith... The very thing which makes us and the things we do acceptable to God, the very thing that Abel is commended for, must be much more than skin deep. It must go way beyond appearances. Faith in God cannot merely be a matter of outward displays of employee responsibility or family respectability, even religious observance, or else why is one brother accepted and the other not? No, faith must have something to do with your heart. That deepest part of you which betrays where your real trust and your real dependence and your real loyalty and your real belief lie. My best friend is is a Sunderland supporter and I have to say that doesn't come very easily to me. Um, I was born and bred on Tyneside. I'm a Newcastle fan through and through. Uh, But growing up, his family, they used to be season ticket holders down at Sunderland. And so from time to time, they'd have a spare ticket. And they'd ask if I wanted to go. And since prices were so high at St. James's Park, I would accept from time to time. And I would go there and watch Sunderland play what you could loosely describe as football. It won't come as a real surprise to you that I didn't go in my Newcastle shirt. In fact... If you're looking for a definition of stupid, then I think wearing black and white on Wearside would probably do it. Now, don't get me wrong, I wasn't exactly pulling on the red and white either, but I did try to fit in. You know, I managed at least polite applause when Sunderland scored. Not that that was a problem very often. See, to look at me, I, I seemed as though I fitted in. But if those around me had known my heart and perished the thought, things could have got pretty nasty. My true loyalty would have been betrayed. See, and for all that Cain and Abel may look to us very similar, God sees beyond our actions. He sees our heart. Here's what the reformer John Calvin says about these verses. It's on your blue sheet. And bear with the slightly archaic language. It's uh, It's worth getting to the bottom of. He says, it is not simply stated that the worship which Abel had paid was pleasing to God, but he begins with the person of the offerer, that's Abel, by which he signifies, by which he means, that God will regard no works with favor except those the doer of which is already previously accepted by him. 
And no wonder, for man sees the things which are apparent, but God looks into the heart. And you get a sense of that in verse 4 as well, don't you, as you look down. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. And so secondly, if you're taking notes, I want you to be encouraged by Abel's example. Be encouraged in a heartfelt and costly trust in God. Of course, one of, the, one of the quite striking things about Abel here is quite how little we're told of him. And we deduce much of what we know by seeing him in stark contrast to his brother Cain, at least as the, the story develops. But look again at what we are told about Abel's offering. See, for all that at first glance, the two offerings may look quite similar. Look again at Abel's offering in verse 4. He has brought the fat portions of the firstborn of his flock. There is a little window here in Abel's actions into his heart. See, bringing the firstborn, it would have been costly to him. Bringing the first and the best of his flock is therefore an expression of real trust in God. He's throwing, if you like, his lot in with God. And this, I think, is what the writer to the Hebrews meant when he said that Abel offered a better sacrifice. And I think that's quite helpful for us as well. Because if you're anything like me, when you look into your heart, you see at best just a mess of mixed motives. So if you want to know if your trust is really in God, then ask yourself, Is my instinct, my greatest desire, to give God the first and best? With my time and my money and my gifts and in where I choose to live and how I choose to teach my children and the way I spend my time with unbelievers. Not to earn his favor, as if I could, but because I've thoroughly thrown my lot in with him because I've grasped my deep need of him, because I trust his word and because he's everything to me. See, we must conclude that that Abel has grasped that the only possible hope for any kind of salvation in this broken and sin-stained world that he's inherited from his parents must lie not in himself as if it could but in God. And because of that, his heart is humbled before God. He recognizes only too well his own sinfulness and brokenness. And his is a heart that takes God at his word, however limited his knowledge of God's salvation plan. His is a heart, therefore, who trusts God's word despite all he doesn't know and doesn't see and doesn't understand. Again, it is striking how little we're told of Abel. His is a heart of faith which gives the first and best. His is a heart, therefore, which is acceptable to God. And Abel's faith is deeply humbling for us, isn't it? I suppose that's why he's held up as an example to the Hebrews and to us. How much more 
do we know of God's gracious plan for salvation for the world? How much more? And yet Abel, who can know relatively little of the mechanics of this plan, who can have heard relatively little of God's word and God's promises, well, he has seen that God is the one to trust. How different we can be. How slow to trust God's word. And how slow, therefore, to give of our first and best. And how different, too, it was for Cain. See, in stark contrast to Abel, he will not respond to God's word. And so we do need to heed the warnings of this passage, too. And so thirdly, we must be warned. Be warned. Heartless devotion is deadly. God speaks to Cain very graciously, doesn't he? Did you see it there in verse 6? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Of course, one implication of that is that Cain has not already done what is right with his offering. See, his heart has not been humbled. He doesn't see the danger of his own sin, which, says God, verse 7, is crouching at his door, ready to devour him. And because of that, there's no desperate dependence on God. And because of that, his offering speaks only of contempt for God, as if some vegetables could pacify or or appease or fob off some distant God that he didn't really want to have anything to do with. And this contempt is confirmed as Cain will not listen to the warnings God speaks. And now his actions begin to betray him as well. Look at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out into the field. Sounds very nice, doesn't it? And while they were there in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. How dangerous it is when the Lord graciously reveals to us our own sinfulness, and yet we choose to ignore him, to push it out of our minds, to think of something else. And don't you find it tempting as we meet week after week, here and in small groups, perhaps on your own, and you read God's word and it challenges you. Look at Cain and be warned. Sin will get a grip on us. See, for Cain, if he had a heart ready to submit to the Lord, he might have heeded the warning of the unaccepted sacrifice. A humbled heart might might have heeded the words of counsel from the Lord. Do what is right, Cain. Sin is crouching at your door, Cain. It wants to master you, Cain. Master it, Cain. But all of these warnings go ignored. And self-righteous Cain grows bitter because God wasn't appeased by his fruit and veg. And then his true heart is really exposed as he takes his brother out into a field and carries out in cold blood premeditated murder. And the world has its first homicide. The beginnings of a bloody trail of destruction, which leads throughout the centuries all the way to a cinema last week in Aurora, Denver, Colorado. But back to the main question, what what does the faith of Abel teach us? How does it help us to see what real faith looks like? 
Well, the point seems to be that real faith is, at least for you and me, quite hard to see. But not so for God, who sees the heart. Real faith is an internal reality, which expresses itself in outward acts of dependence and devotion. Real faith is, if I can put it this way, real It's real on the inside. It's a real trust in God's word. It's not a fake and it's not a show. I've just taken up running and I've been doing it for a few months now and I've got to that stage where I can run a modest, and I mean modest, a modest number of miles without feeling like I'm actually going to die. Now, I could buy myself some Team GB running kit. You can get it pretty easily. And uh, since apparently there aren't enough security guards, I might be able to sneak my way into the Olympic Park, even into the starting blocks for, say, the 1,500 metres. Anything more than that wouldn't be good. I could look the part in all the gear. I could probably stretch and warm up. I could do that thing where they look really focused. But at the sound of the pistol, I would be exposed as a fake. And if you're here tonight and you'd consider yourself a Christian, may I, by way of example, ask you a question? May I ask you why you came here tonight? If you were really honest, are you here tonight because you know you'll leave with the warm satisfaction of knowing you've ticked the church box for another week and you've appeased God for another seven days? You've given him his allotted time. Or, are you here because you know, in your sinfulness, your desperate need for God? You know your hunger for the food of his words. Are you here because, like Abel, you've thrown your lot in with him? Spilled blood always cries out for vengeance, doesn't it? I mean, murder always calls for justice. And there are 12 families in Denver, Colorado, who know that only just too well at the minute. And back in Genesis 4, the murder of an apparently humble man by his own brother, too self-righteous, bitter and proud to see his own need of God, certainly cries out for justice. But it does also resonate deeply with another death, with the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, the humble, the innocent man, murdered by his own people, too self-righteous, bitter and proud to see their need of him. But the remarkable paradox on which the Christian faith hangs is that the blood of Jesus, it, it doesn't cry out for vengeance. It cries out instead for mercy and pardon. And I guess that's why the writer to the Hebrews tells us to fix our eyes not on Abel, but on Jesus. One last page turn for the evening. Turn uh, back with me to Hebrews, but on a little further this time, uh, into chapter 12 and verse 24, and see what the writer says about Jesus. The Hebrew Christians have come to Jesus, 
the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A word of peace and mercy and forgiveness and pardon. And the spilled blood of Jesus is the very crux of God's plan of salvation, hoped for, trusted in by Abel. So if you want to have an acceptable faith, remember, God looks upon the heart. So cultivate a heartfelt and costly trust in him. A faith which gives the first and best, not to earn his favor, as if you could. But because the blood of Jesus, which speaks a word of mercy and pardon to us, is all the evidence you need, indeed it's more than Abel had, to persuade you to throw your lot in thoroughly with Jesus Christ. Rebecca was 94 when she died. And after the funeral, her family gathered around the obligatory bite-sized sausage rolls and shared memories. They consoled themselves with the usual platitudes that we tend to resort to when we don't know what to say. She had a good innings. She wouldn't want all this fuss if only she could see us now. And above all, they consoled themselves that Rebecca had lived a good and respectable life. She gave to charity. She went to church. Words could not describe the experience for Rebecca as she found herself standing before the judgment seat of God. For a moment, there was only a great and hanging silence, both wonderful and terrifying. And there was a feeling of being totally exposed, as if every deed and word and thought were laid bare. But Rebecca felt, as she had for many years, deeply unworthy of the favor of God, and yet captivated by Jesus Seeing him at last was a bit terrifying, but also a bit wonderful. She came to God knowing only too well that she was not, by nature, a good person at all. She came to God as she had for countless years in faith, pleading only the blood of Jesus, the the blood which cries out for mercy and pardon. She came only trusting God's word that those who throw their lot in with Jesus will be saved and despite all that the words which followed next from the very lips of God came as a wonderful surprise well done good and faithful servant shall we pray together Father God, we praise you for the precious blood of Jesus, which speaks a word of mercy and pardon and forgiveness. By your spirit, humble our hearts that we may trust in you and in your word, and that we may throw our lot in thoroughly with the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.